This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. So the call into question toxic masculinity, to call in question our relationship to gender identities is also to call in question the current economic system overall. It is to call into question the system that perpetuates sexual violence and gender violence all across the board. And so it, it is truly the struggle to, to dismantle and smash the patriarchy is a decolonial approach. We are talking about decolonization. That is what it, this is really coming down to. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Dallas Goldtooth. Dallas Goldtooth is the Keep It in the Ground campaign organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network. He is also the co-founder of the Indigenous comedy group, the 1491s. Dallas is Dakota and Dene, a loving husband, dedicated father, comedian, public speaker, recovering exotic dancer, plastic shaman extraordinaire, and body double for the guy who plays Thor in them Thor movies. <laughs> oh, Dallas, this is so wonderful to have you on the show today. I've had the pleasure and the honor of being able to spend time with you in many different areas of this globe. And every time I'm so inspired by you and uplifted by you, and I feel so happy to be connecting today ditto (laughs) (laughs) no i'm so happy to be here Uh, thank you ayana for this opportunity and thank you for reading that bio and not reading the more boring bio on my organization's website always you're always keeping it non-boring and i love you for it thank you so um i I love that i love the fact that somebody's going to be out there thinking that it's true that I was the body double for Thor in those Thor movies. I, you know what? It's not impossible. It's not, it's not an impossible <laughs> feat. <laughs> well, many of our <laughs> listeners might know you in relationship to your on-the-ground activism and your work with the Keep It in the Ground campaign and the Indigenous Environmental Network. But anyone who follows you on social media knows that you're also incredibly outspoken about the necessity to address toxic masculinity which makes you one of the very few men who is utilizing their platforms to have these completely necessary conversations. So I want to actually begin by reading a quote from Bell Hooks, Understanding Patriarchy. Quote, Patriarchy is the single most life-threatening social disease assaulting the male body and spirit in our nation. Yet most men do not use the word patriarchy in everyday life. 
most men in our nation would not be able to spell the word or pronounce it correctly. The word patriarchy is not a part of their normal everyday thought or speech, end quote. So I'd love if you could begin by sharing what was the catalyst that created your commitment to dismantling toxic masculinity and patriarchy? To be absolutely honest, is when I started having kids and I have uh, three beautiful daughters and in that process, when you have children, you cannot help, you cannot help this, I don't care who you are, uh, you cannot help but stick, take a step back and evaluate your own relationship to your parents and their parenting. So for me, this journey to be, to vocalize my understanding, my relationship, and even as a man, my perpetuation of toxic masculinity really began when I started having kids. It, like, it really became to the forefront when I had my, my youngest daughter. And um, I, we have three, my, my wife, we have three, three daughters together. And it just became so present and real, like understanding the dangers that they will face, the risks that they have to assume just for the fact that they are uh, female-oriented, female-identified. And it scares the crap out of me. It, 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 and it really um, propelled me to like take to really step up even more than what I may have assumed I was already doing. Um, so that that was like a, a pivotal moment in my life. These past, you know, these uh, these years as as I've become a father, to really say like, look, I I can't just I cannot just ensure the safety of my daughters when I'm around them or in, in our in our social sphere as a family. But I have to take a further step and try to do my very best with whatever amplification, whatever uh, following I may have, social impact. What is that word? Influence that I may have to try to help bring that message to a larger space, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Well, I, I also want to state that, like, I feel like it was always there, this recognition of, of toxic masculinity and imbalanced uh, patriarchy ever since I was a kid. My mom, uh, my mom is an amazing, powerful, just leader and woman and just like, just so amazing. Her Dakota name is Strong Dependable Woman. And well, it's Dakota version. It does, it's not the English version, <laughs> but, and she wrote, she was in a book. There was an anthology. There was a book that was put out called uh, uh, Wounded Warriors. And it was an anthology of different native adults who went through traumatic experiences of foster care as children. And my mom was one of those stories. And so she wrote, it was a guy, this guy came in, interviewed her. She did, uh, he basically dictated her story and put it into this book. And it's, it's difficult to read. And she made us read it or she read it. She made us read it, all of her kids, when we turned 13 years old. I think I read it when I was 12 or 11. And it just lays out the violence that she saw, the abuse that that she experienced physical, sexual, uh, spiritual, and emotional abuse as a child, even into uh, teenage teenage years. And she did that, I feel like she, she did that just to say, like, this is who I am. This is my story, and this is a part of you. This is a part of us as a family. And that 
she's like, I'm not ashamed to share this because you need to know this. And so it, that was like the, 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 the really the, the foundation of from how I, I, how I see toxic masculinity, how I see the, the corruption and the, the sickness that is within our society. Like it came, that foundational idea came out of the experiences my mom went through. And, and, and her hopes to say, look, I don't want you to go through this. I, I don't want you all, as my children, I want to tell you about my hardship, my trauma. But also I want to tell you and show you how I've healed or how I'm healing from that. And how I'm reacting and responding to that. So that is the biggest thing I learned from my mother. Is like, so go through some of the most difficult things a human being can go through. But also come through it with such lightheartedness and joy for life itself and, and our older years. Hmm. Thank you, Dallas, for sharing that and for bringing your mom into this conversation. It really gives this such um, such an intimate understanding of, of where you're coming from, and I really appreciate that. Another thing I've been thinking about on this topic is it's really clear that engaging in either hyper-masculinity or hyper-femininity severs us from the totality of our humanity. There's a quote from Terence Real, and it's, quote, psychological patriarchy is the dynamic between those qualities deemed, quote, masculine and, quote, feminine, in which half of our human traits are exalted while the other half is devalued. Both men and women participate in this tortured value system. Psychological patriarchy is a, quote, dance of contempt, a perverse form of connection that replaces true intimacy with complex, covert layers of dominance and submission, collusion and manipulation. It is the unacknowledged paradigm of relationship that has suffused Western civilization generation after generation, deforming both sexes and destroying the passionate bond between them, end quote. And I'm thinking about unpacking that quote, and I, I'm wondering... How do you see toxic masculinity specifically preventing so many from developing as whole humans? And then furthermore, why is the development of whole humans considered so threatening to dominant culture? Oh, man, that, that, that's a heavy quote. That's a, that's a dope. That, that's a finger snap quote. Finger snaps. <laughs> I think it, to really, for me to really describe and to, to break down my response is look at what is the, the calls to action coming out of indigenous communities right now across this planet. There's a demand for climate justice. There's a demand for the recognition of indigenous rights and self-determination. But what are those things about? What is it really coming down to when, when you hear these, call, the, these demands? For me, I, the way I see it is that these are demands for consent. These are demands for control and self-determination of what happens to our lands our air, and most importantly, or, or I guess just as important, our bodies. And it's a, a demand for us to allow us and, and give us as indigenous peoples that space to continue our practice of living in balance with our ecosystems as best as we can be. And our identities and, our, and how we navigate the identities of, of masculinity and femininity is as a core component of that. This society the mainstream society that we battle against does exactly what you what the quote talks about is it severs us it makes us decide which line what which side of the line do we want to do you want to stand on 
and you have to make a hard decision between that binary. And a lot of communities are saying, F that. No, we, we will decide. We decide what is the metrics of our identity as human beings. And it's on our terms. To hell with your binary codes. Like we will, we, we will take control of and take power of that. I really, there's so many things on my mind about this. I was in a, a group discussion some years ago. It was like a, plan, uh, uh, a panel at this uh, large gathering called Bioneers down in the, the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was about ta- toxic masculinity. And it was facilitated, the co- discussion was facilitated by Eve Ensler, the playwright for uh, the Vagina Monologues. And we were talking about, there was a question about who suffers from toxic masculinity and, and imbalanced patriarchy. You know, for some folks, the immediate response is, well, it's, you know, those that are, those identify as female, you know, folks, women and, and children is as the primary victims, if, if you could say. But in, in the group discussion, what we kind of got, came to is like, no, we all suffer. We are all victims of it. And, and something that we, we always, that's really painful as men to admit is that in some ways we suffer the greatest of all because we are what we are doing as we continue that path of saying this is what a man means a man means to be violent a man means to be uh, uh, domineering a man means this this and that all these things that are in line with toxic masculinity is that we are completely and, and utterly cutting off our ability to be whole humans and connect with our feminine our femininity you know we are completely closing ourselves off from being the complete human beings that we were born and created to be. When we are hurt, we're, we're taught not to cry. When we are angry or frustrated or scared or terrified, we are taught as men that we only have a limited set of tools in which to respond. And oftentimes that those tools are self-destructive or uh, destructive to those around us. In that we as human beings have been gifted a wider range of other tools that are seen, quote unquote, on, as, as the feminine side of it, that can be regenerative and healing and restorative. And yet every one of us has access to all of these. So that's uh, like when I do the work that I do, when I talk about the, you know, the issue of, of being more accountable as men, when I talk about um, us smashing the patriarchy, my target audience is fellow men in in saying look like you are we're destroying ourselves we are less than because we choose to promote this system that is uh that is destroying us Hmm. gosh i resonated so much with what you just said and the confusion around what it is to even be a quote man or, um, you know, who are the people that are suffering? And of course it's women and children and, um, and, and men and non-binary people, everybody suffers, the world suffers. It's not, we're all victims to it. And so I'm, I have a lot of thoughts in my head right now. One, I'm thinking about how male fragility plays a huge role in understanding how periled our relationships are you know, women and non-binary people and children have had to adjust and adopt and navigate around 
male fragility and toxic masculinity, which I feel like go hand in hand, without many men even really ever having to interrogate it themselves, which then raises this question of how entitlement fits into the conversation, the entitlement that many men, especially white men, are born with, are born into, conditioned to. And then at the same time, I think I'm finding that more and more men are awakening to feelings of uncertainty, like you were speaking of, you know, that they themselves are not even sure what it means to be a man in these current troubled times. So I wonder when it comes to re-envisioning masculinity, a, a healthy masculinity, what does that look like to you? I think first and foremost, it's a great question. Great question, by the way. I think that first and foremost, it becomes a major part of it is accountability. It's accountability and emotional intelligence. Like it is a matter of us as, as, as individuals to be accountable for how we engage and interact with our relatives on this planet. And, and, and in order to do so, that we have to raise our emotional intelligence about ourselves. We are not challenged as men in this current society. The mainstream society does not challenge men to understand why they're doing the things that they do. It does not challenge men to ask themselves, who are they accountable to? It does not challenge men to be aware of how they are contributing to the suffering or the inconvenience or the distraction of other folks. It does not, the mainstream society does not challenge us whatsoever in those regards. And so what we have to do is respond to that and challenge ourselves to question all those things. And there's something about it is like, I was talking to a couple of uh, folks about this. There's a there's an interesting dynamic here. If I go in, and this is all based off of experience, if I go and publicize that I'm going to give a talk about toxic masculinity in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and publicize and put flyers all around, guaranteed, or um, it's a good assumption, that the vast majority of the people that will come to that talk will be women or women identified. And the question to ask is why? Why is that? And it just speaks to this terrible truth that to exist in this society, to, to live in this society, women's safety and health is dependent on them knowing men better than men know themselves. You have to know how a man thinks. You have to know how a man, what motivates a man. You have to know about the, the dangers uh, a man poses to your well-being. You have to know them more than they know themselves in order to ensure your safety in this world. And so there, there's a vested interest to know about that. And that's why you, I feel like you often see that. Men don't have that interest. There's not that we're not required to know ourselves because our safety is not dependent on our identity. And the parallel there is the same as community. Like there's a, there's a distinct parallel to that to, and I, I might go off topic here to communities of color, right? We always talk about like communities of color know the law better than sometimes the law itself. You know, our, our black relatives, black folks out there know the law or know the police procedure sometimes better than other folks because our lives depend on it in very in many cases to know it better as people of color we need we need to know white folks more than white folks know themselves because our very lives and survival depends on it and the same can be said about the dynamics between men and women and that's 
terrifying. That's a terrifying truth. And I think that as men, more men have to be accountable to that and really understand that. And so when it, when we talk about what does healthy masculinity look like, it comes to really the, the, the first steps towards that is developing emotional intelligence to interrogate oneself's behavior uh, in relationships. Yeah, and, and I think there's a whole other range of things I could add to it, but I, I, I'll stop there for the moment. Wow, that's so deep to think that uh, non-identifying men um, or women, non-binary people, children have to know men better than men know themselves to stay safe and how that is so parallel to communities of color and white people. I mean, that is a really, really deep insight. And I'm so appreciative of that. And yeah, as we get deeper into this conversation, I'd love to hear what else comes up for you around healthy masculinity. And, you know, when I think about toxic masculinity, it's, it's really so much more than just immediate violence or abuse or assault in the private sphere. You know, it's ultimately about power and control. And so while this thought is, of course, nothing new, it would feel amiss to not discuss the patriarchal assaults on earth as being akin to the violence perpetuated against women. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the convergences between these assaults as someone who is trying to unravel toxic masculinity and who is also a part of a campaign that is completely against the non-consensual extraction of resources from earth. Yeah. My good sister, Candy White, who is from the three affiliated tribes in North Dakota, she's my co-conspirator. She's my co-worker, my colleague at Indigenous Environmental Network. She always talks about how Mother Earth, the land, is, is the first body. Is the, it's the first body for all of us. It is is the origin for all life on this planet. And it is also the first body to be trespassed to be pillaged, to be raped. It is the first body to experience sexual violence of this extractive economy and, and, and capitalism. And that that we as the children experience that trauma in very distinct ways as a result. And there's a distinct relationship between the sexual violence that we see perpetrated upon Mother Earth and the sexual violence we see in our communities, especially those communities so that are located at these zones of extraction of resource extraction and the stories there's so many stories out there that are parallel that are just exact mirrors of each other whether they're in the amazon or they're in the arctic or you're in north dakota or you're in california it's it just shows you that this entire system is predicated upon the exploitation and the violence against communities of color for the um, accumulation of wealth or capitalism. And it's no wonder that it's just, I guess it's, it's clear as day that there's no question why in places like the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota, where it's the current economic boom for the fracking industry in the United States is also one of the places of highest instances of sexual violence in the country. Like they go hand in hand. So to call into question toxic masculinity, to call in question our relationship to gender identities is also to call in question the current economic system overall. It is to call into question the system 
that perpetuates sexual violence and gender violence all across the board. And so it, it is truly this struggle to, to dismantle and smash the patriarchy is a decolonial approach. We are talking about decolonization. That is what it, this is really coming down to. Indigenous people, shine your light, we are equal. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people. Oh, yeah. Rise up, all you warriors of love. All you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I can feel it in my heart. Can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seven fire calling us to wake up, wake all up. All nations rise. Rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore, cause now's the time. All nations rise, rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore, cause now's the time. We had a really incredible interview with Candy many moons ago, but she shared in detail the inherent sexual abuse and violence that comes with the establishment of man camps, which you had mentioned, you know, these places of extraction. It feels only right to mention that the vast majority of the time, the crimes that contribute to the growing number of missing and murdered indigenous women are committed by non-native men. So I'm wondering... What does it mean to unpack toxic masculinity, say in your own community, while facing another threat driven by settlers who greatly contribute to the statistics that predict that one in three Native women will be assaulted before she turns 18? Oh, can you, I guess, can you, I guess, rephrase the question or repeat it for me? Yeah, sure. So like I was saying in this previous interview we had with Candy, she talks about abuse and violence in the man camps. And I wanted to mention that so much of the violence in these man camps are perpetuated by non-native men. So I'm wondering, how do you unpack toxic masculinity in your own community, you know, your own community or communities that you work in, while at the same time having to deal with the threats driven by settlers who contribute to this violence against indigenous women. So it's like, in a sense, it's having to deal with two forms of toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity in your own community, and then the wider settler community and, and the interaction between the two. Yeah. It's a struggle. I mean, to be completely honest, it is a struggle. Um, and I guess to further recognize is that I, as an identified man, as a self-identified man, how I struggle with that is nowhere compared to those that, that identify as women in our, in our society because it literally affects their lives. And it really just encourages us, it motivates us, and it necessitates for us to connect the dots, 
to make our movement that we're seeing right now, this movement of movements, this social movement, this, this struggle to resist, to stand up and fight back, that we have to make it as intersectional as possible. We have to really connect the dots between the struggles in order to really effectively build a better world for ourselves. And so what it does is that when it when you see it from that perspective that what's happening in the Bakken oil fields is no different than what's happening down in the, the, frack zone, the fracking zones of the Chaco Canyon region of New Mexico. It's no different than what you're seeing in the some of the violence that we're seeing against water protectors who are fighting the Bayou Ridge Pipeline down in Louisiana, where we're seeing women, indigenous women, being attacked for defending the land. It's no different than just almost uh, all every corner of this country where you know we're seeing sexual violence and gender violence occur. That that this is a, a systemic issue that we have to approach in the, with a big picture here. So in a way, it just it motivates me. It says like, okay, our struggles are parallel. Are, we are united in this struggle. Therefore, I have more allies in this fight than I thought I had. I have more tools in this struggle than I thought I had because we are everywhere. Those of us who are fighting and standing up and resisting. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. I really appreciate how you're taking just the heaviness and the intensity of it and finding ways to find more solidarity within that. And I think that's so important as organizers, as people who really want to engage with these really just heavy, overwhelming topics to know that there are fissures in the dominant system. And when we come together and we create this intersectional solidarity, we can break through in such a more just robust way. And I really, really appreciate that. So I want to, I want to get into this idea of PTSD and how that also comes into this mix. And I think about how young boys are taught from a really young age, particularly in this country, that their anger and their rage is indeed appropriate under certain circumstances, for example, in defense. And then if we follow that seed, we can see how it thrives in a culture of war and violence and the empowerment mm-hmm. of toxic masculinity. It upholds patriotism. It upholds nationalism and white supremacy and settler colonialism. But this very mm-hmm. same culture of violence is also responsible for the debilitating phenomenon of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm just wondering how often does PTSD, especially amongst veterans of war, say, come up when examining toxic masculinity in your conversations? It, it, it happens. One of my best friends just lost a buddy of his, of his um, a fellow Marine to suicide just a couple of days ago. And this is the fourth death to suicide within his circle of veterans, of friends since coming back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Coupled with that is the loss of a number of other men in our family, in my, in my social circles, to overdose and in, in, to suicide. And there's a wide variety of reasons. You know, we could talk about the immediate reasons, uh, whatever circumstances they were going through in their life. But... And talking with my my friends and talking with the men around me, it it comes down to one of the things it comes down to is just our 
seemingly inability as men to heal, to, to find the right path to process the rage and anger and most importantly the fear we have. And that we have been taught from day one and indoctrinated that we only we can only respond to these to these emotions with self-destructive means. It makes it so much harder for us. This is not a pity party. I'm I'm not trying to look at pity for for men here. I'm just recognizing the fact as human beings we carry so much trauma and we're not allowing ourselves to find the path to healing. And so there's a large number, a growing number of men out there who are trying to do their very best to help fellow men on that path to healing, help us re-examine and redetermine the limits of masculinity to its greatest extent for the benefit of all of us. And it's hard work, but it really needs to happen because, like you said, as you were talking about, like, Toxic masculinity is a symptom of a greater systemic disorder that is killing all of us. That toxic masculinity is merely a pillar that is holding up this greater system of white supremacy and capitalism that is is embedded itself in all corners of this planet. And that in order for us to truly respond to that in order for us to truly build the world that we are all talking about we have to really recognize that those pillars and and dismantle them as much as possible and i say that with the extra charge for folks listening for relatives that are listening out there is if you want to build a better world you cannot only just talk about toxic masculinity you have to talk about white supremacy in the same conversation you have to talk about southern colonialism in the same conversation because they are all supporting each other they're all linked together they're all working together to drive this planet over the cliff even faster mm-hmm. uh, i just my good sister a good friend of mine jb gay recently wrote about blood memory, this concept of blood memory. I know uh, my friend Candy, who I mentioned before, she she also speaks about it a lot, that we carry the blood memory of our ancestors before us, but we also carry the trauma of that before us, that came before. And so we have, we have the dual hardship of not only dealing with our own trauma within our lifetimes, but also dealing with the trauma of our communities over a, a series of generations. And to to spin it in a more in a in a lighthearted direction, that also means that we have not only our experience, our own life's experiences to respond to that, our experiences of of agency and activism to respond to that. We also have generations upon generations of positive energy and experience to respond to those as well. These intergenerational wounds run really deep and and the gender wounds run incredibly deep. And I'm thinking about what you said at the intersection of white supremacy and toxic masculinity and settler colonialism and the weaving of those, oh, I don't even know what to call them right now, but these gender wounds, they're running really deep. And I think, you know, today's 
Domestic violence impacts one-third of all women globally, and it's the leading cause for injury and death between women 15 to 54. And I think at this point, one could argue that toxic masculinity is a sort of universal inheritance, regardless of socioeconomic status or race or religion. So I just wonder about these tendencies because it would appear that so many of us have adopted these behaviors as an innate human quality and scoffed at those who have challenged them. So I'm wondering, what are the root origins of this behavior, in your opinion? And then a second question on that is, is there an argument to be made that cultures that possess certain spiritual and environmental ethics were less susceptible to perversions of power, violence, and control? Oh, those are like some uh, multi-syllable words there kind of over my head. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, it's great questions. I I think, I don't know. Um, Well, we could just take the uh, first, like, what do you think the root origins of this behavior is? Well, I, you know, I think that I, I, as an indigenous person, as an indigenous man, coming from a community that has been fighting settler colonialism for hundreds of years now, cannot ignore the fact that that the people that brought those colonial projects into our, on those lands had Bibles in their hands. And that one of the you know motivations for them was the fact that they had a worldview that dictated for them to go out and to subdue the land to subdue the life on this planet and to spread that word. I'm saying that I know that might be a charged (laughs) statement, but that's the reality. I really think that you can't have a sustained accumulation of wealth without continued forms of extraction in the eyes of, of this current economic system. In order to do that, you have to accumulate more resources, which more land. In order to do that, you have to clear the people from that land or or subjugate them to be used for the purpose of resource extraction. So slavery or you just kill them. And then in order to do that, you have to create some form of a militaristic approach in order to subjugate them or to keep them in line or to kill them and hunt them and, and go to war with them. And so every level of the game is about dominance. Every level of the game is about a hyper-masculine approach to dominate for the purpose of capitalism, for the purpose of the accumulation of wealth. And and so I think that that idea, the concept of dominance in, in our purpose on this planet has a major part to play in what we're seeing right now. What is our relationship to the land? Are we here... As the what's that word? What's the word? Um, the top of the food chain? What's uh, that? Uh, like hierarchy or the apex? The apex, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. We're, are are we the apex predator? Like we have, I firmly believe we have a conscious choice to say yes or no to a certain extent when it comes down to us deciding what are the dictates of our society. We are the masters of all, so therefore we have the right to dominate all. Is what is currently in charge. And there are countless communities, indigenous and land-based, non-indigenous communities, who are trying to say otherwise, who are trying to advocate for a different approach. A bit of a long-winded response to it, but I really mm-hmm. think that 
some of that comes down to it. And I, mm-hmm. I just, yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't. I, I think it's it needed a long-winded response, if anything. It's a really complex question because it's it's really asking about the origins of our humanity, of our behaviors. Where are some of these, yeah, behaviors coming from? Where do they stem from? And it's a really challenging question because um, it has to take into account so much of history and the origins of that. So definitely it wasn't too long-winded at all. But I'm thinking about something that you had mentioned a couple responses ago around, you know, you were saying that men have been really wounded and not that they're victims and it's not that it's let's have a pity party for men, but nonetheless, men are hurting. And I really, I really feel that. And, and I think there is a lot to unpack in that. And so, you know, I'd like to address the role of men in creating networks of accountability and support systems. Because on one hand, mm-hmm. men absolutely need to be held accountable for the harm they either willingly or ignorantly cause. And, you know, you've gone on to write that the verbalization of crimes actually functions as a form of healing and justice for both victims and communities. But at the same mm-hmm. time, if that is the extent of our actions, then this cycle will just continue into future generations because it's not enough to simply just shame a person into non-existence. In fact, I feel like often enough, this shame actually empowers many men to just cling even tighter to the last remaining vestiges of intense patriarchy, especially during mm-hmm. a time when call-out culture and the act of you know canceling is so unbridled. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, I'm really in this question, but I guess I'd like <laughs> to ask you to talk about both the role of men holding other men accountable and the importance of regenerative justice and forgiveness if we want to truly mm-hmm. heal our communities. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a needed question. I mean, that's the immediate follow-up. Is it's, it's, it's a question that leads us down the path of what are we trying to build, right? What's, what's the world that we want to see? To start my, my response, I, first and foremost, I have to recognize, fully recognize the incredible amount of labor and tremendous work that has been led by women, LGBTI folks, or queer relatives, trans relatives, to hold men accountable for their toxicity, for their patriarchy, and for the, promotion, the, the perpetuation of dysfunction in our society. And it's women, queer relatives, trans relatives who are, who have, are leading this movement and what, what I'm really like, what me and a, a number of other uh, folks are call, de- calling for and demanding is like, it's time for us to really, as men and those identify as men, to step up to the plate, to really, really step up to a greater degree, to hold ourselves accountable and to really be a part of this movement to, to heal our communities, our societies. So with that being said, Let's talk about, I guess we, I want to talk about like, what does it mean for on the ground? What does this actually look like on the ground? In my community, I'm from a, a, a small Dakota community in Southwest Minnesota. We, we have roughly 1500 citizens that live there, uh, that are enrolled with our, with our tribal nation and about, you know, seven, 800 of them live in a small community there. Um, pretty tight knit community. And We've had this discussion about holding men accountable. And one way to do that 
uh, when men, uh, when we have a perpetrator in a community or you have a violent offender or even have somebody like one of our communities uh, has laws against uh, people that are, are dealing drugs, they get banished. If you are a perpetrator, there's a banishment procedure where the community banishes you. But there, there's a, there, a couple of years ago, there was this whole conversation about like, all right, what about men who are accused of sexual harassment? But, you know, the, for whatever reasons, the court system's not able to charge them. You know, what about these instances where we know men are like, you know, these are asshole guys that are just asshole guys. I don't know how else to word it, but you know, all these instances of where we have toxic men in our community, do we banish them all? What happens? Like, what is the repercussions of that? And my mom and my aunties, like one of my aunties, she was like, we can't do that because to a certain extent, like we are cutting off just as much as men have been cut off from their, the feminine side of their existence. We would be as a community, as a nation, cutting off the masculine side of our, of our culture, of our identity. We have to find a different way. And that's a challenge. Like, what does that look like, right? Some of our ceremonies, like one of our, one of our most important ceremonies, there's a couple of times where there's been men who have now, known to harass women, who have known to have been perpetrators, and we've asked them to leave. We've told them, like, you can't be here. This is not a space that you're not welcomed at because your, your presence does not create a space of healing and a space of safety for relatives who are here. And we understand that, and I've, I've supported that. But then also on the other side of my mind, I'm like, okay, but how are we actually looking towards healing as a community? What does this space look like? And, I, and I'm, I'm walking in the muddy waters here. I'm fully aware of that because there's a whole spectrum of what you would say offenders to our community, whether it's you know folks that have been convicted of, of sexual violence and other folks who are on a far lesser degree, who just, yeah, on a far, on the other end of the spectrum, but who are still in that pocket of like, hey, this guy is not welcomed in this space. What does community accountability look like? But also what does restorative justice and healing look like as a people? Because my aunties and my mom asked a really distinct, hard question. They're like, or they, there was a statement my mom made was, if, <laughs> if we... If we banished, and I'm laughing because I'm trying to remember it, and the way she said it was, was pretty funny, but she, to me, to all of us, she made us laugh. But she's like, if we made a decision to kick out all the creepy men, there would be no men in this space. <laughs> and is that what we really want? Mm. You know? She's like, I don't want that. So we have, she's like, we have to be more creative and inventive of how we hold men accountable, but also how do we welcome them into a space of community? Six million women thrown to the flames. The library is burning, or remember their names. The first colonization of the human race didn't happen in America, it happened in the place of mom. Mamula. The people's land, Nasha Jemnia.
You know, I'm thinking about how we can hold men accountable. And and this is, you know, not just other men, but how can other members of the community hold men accountable, but at the same time hold space for the healing. And it's really, oh, it's just such a big, huge, huge topic to work through. And I, for, for the last question, because I know we've been going at it and I want to respect your time, but I think about this thought process of like everybody is starting at their own level and sometimes I get really frustrated by that because I'm like we don't have time (laughs) we don't have time for people that are starting at a really low level and they're working their way up it's like the glaciers are melting the you know oil spilling we don't but you know even though I feel this urgency I also realize that this is a true fact that people are coming in at different levels and I recently spoke to Reverend M. Kalani Souza was such, that was such an amazing conversation with him. And he really spoke about this importance of language and diplomacy when we have conversations pertaining to like the shifting of consciousness or critical analysis of our behaviors as humans. And we don't have time or we can't afford to alienate the people who need these conversations the most. So I'm you know wondering what advice do you have when it comes to being an ally in dismantling unhealthy patriarchy. And this other question is, you know, what is our responsibility in making this conversation as accessible as possible to those outside of our circles? Because while it's clear that everyone, like I said, is at a different level, we all need to be leveling up right now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a timely and pertinent question for sure. Well, I, I feel like honestly, the one one way to answer that is is something that I try to do in my own life is for those that have families that have kids is like I'm trying to embody as much as I can what I want to see for my son. Like I want, I'm trying to embody the sacred masculine as much as possible for my son so that he can break some of these cycles, right? Like it's crazy because I was sitting there just a couple of days ago. It's like three days ago. I was sitting with my son. My son is nine years old. And I said, you know what, son? My, I'm rubbing my, my hands, running my hands through his hair. And I just gave him a kiss on the cheek. And I said, you know what's crazy, son? I said, there are a lot of boys out there whose dads never say I love you. And who, will never, who don't kiss them on the cheek. And he looked at me and he was like, what? Really? He's like, why? And I was like, 
just because that's the way those dads were taught to be. Like they were taught to not say I love you. They were taught not to show love and affection. And my son said, that's so sad. He was like, they don't get to hug their dad. They don't get to hug and snuggle. And I said, no. And for him, what I made me laugh and smile is that the fact that he responded in that way, like he could not comprehend that. Shows me, like, hey, I'm doing something good. It's hard for him to comprehend a world where, where a dad does not say I love you and does not give you hugs and does not show affection. And so it just get, it reinforces, like, hey, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing good. I think I'm doing good here. And that's a charge for each and every one of us who have kids out there who have nieces or who have nephews to practice that and to encourage them to be completely human, to allow them to be human. I do the same thing. There's a couple of us men that we we are not afraid. We encourage ourselves actually to say I love you to other men of our age as a, as signs of affection. Whether it's your cousins or your brothers or your friends, your bros say, "Hey, I love you, man." Using the power of language to combat our education as men is is absolutely key. So that I think is one tremendous step is to disrupt the status quo in our daily lives about what it means to be a man is absolutely essential to continue to challenge ourselves. I am totally about it. Like continue to challenge men who are mansplaining to continue men, men who are taking up too much of the space, who are sucking up all the air in a room to continue to challenge those is absolutely essential. But on the flip side to also understand that, that we as men are using the only language that we've been taught, and it's a stunted language, it is an inadequate language, it is a language devoid of some of the most critical aspects of being a complete human. And so we are disabled to a certain extent. There's an issue of disability here that we have to be mindful of and have a certain amount of like, okay, I may not l- love this person, I may not like this may not be a time or energy. I don't want to give energy to this individual man, but to men overall, we have to ha- create, start creating that space for healing and to learn, to relearn a language of love that allows us to be complete human beings. Dallas, mm. thank you so much. And I loved hearing about that intimate moment with your son and the snuggles and just how you were and so lovingly explaining to him how other boys and fathers don't get that don't don't have that connection and that was really really beautiful to share that with us thank you and and thank you for all of this Alice you know like i said i i've had such such the joy of spending time with you and and you work in so many different ways in the world and i know probably many of the listeners know that and know you are a tireless organizer for indigenous sovereignty and issues surrounding climate change and extreme resource extraction and protection of land and earth. And to know that you also do this work with toxic masculinity and connecting the dots of toxic masculinity and unhealthy patriarchy and white supremacy and settler colonialism and resource extraction. I mean, wow, you are so comprehensive in your understanding. And then in the way that you implement your understanding in, you know, in communities, in the way you communicate 
with people. I'm just so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful that you have given so much of yourself to be such a deeply thoughtful and caring and um, connected person. So I'm, I'm giving you a huge hug through this computer technological connection we're having right now. <laughs> and um, and thank you so much, Dallas, for all this. Thank you so much. And I, I have a hard time dealing with any type of praise whatsoever, but I appreciate your words <laughs> and much love and positive energy to all those listeners for one, sticking through for this interview and listening to uh, the things that were shared here, but also for your efforts to smash the patriarchy and to build a better world. Like I really believe in in the power of the collective. It's not individuals. It's not elected leaders. It's not uh, individual people that create tremendous moments of change. It is mass movements that create that change. And uh, I really firmly believe that we are we are capable of doing it and achieving it. So thank you for this podcast, for being a part of that movement. Thank you for as, as an interviewer and uh, leader for that, Ayanna. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from our dear friend, Lila June. Our theme music is Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our podcast team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, our research collaborator and writer, Francesca Glassbell, our media director, Molly Lebov, communications director, Aaron Wise, and our music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please do so on our website at forthewild.world and subscribe on iTunes. All right, thanks so much, and until next time. Away from this wild open sky on the country trails and wide.